Good morning, church. Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. Let's do this. Many of you know that I often pray for one of the churches of our community because our heart here at KCC is to be a part of a kingdom, not just to grow our little kingdom. Uh, and uh, the kingdom here in Kerrville, Texas, took a little bit of a hit uh, and will uh, in the upcoming weeks. John Standridge, who preaches for Christ Church, is going to be leaving our community and heading up to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, that's just not going to be a an author in our newspaper that's going to be missed, I promise you. That's going to be a, a fellow friend of mine and a fellow cohort in um, sharing the gospel here in our community that's going to be deeply, deeply missed. So I'm going to pray for Christ Church as they're in that transition this morning. And um, we've got a few of our own transitions underway, so let's bow. Lord, you know that this church is looking for a children's minister. And uh, we need your help. Uh, please, uh, we have been so blessed by Renee and her ministry. Um, it's going to be a tough act to follow, but um, you gave her to us eight years ago, and we realized that uh, you were responsible for that, and so we're trusting that you will do the same, and uh, you, know, you help bring us someone who um, will also love our kids and point them to Christ like uh, Renee and Steve have done. Father, transitions are always tough, and right now Christ Church is undergoing one. And as we together stand under the cross this morning and, and alongside the resurrection, um, we lift up those brothers and sisters there who are going to be missing John and Kit and Julie and the boys. Um, I'm going to be missing them. And so, Father, uh, we ask that you please bring someone, bring a family there to that family to uh, worship and to lead and to pastor Christ Church uh, that will not only pastor that church but your church in this entire community. We love you, and we ask you to come be with us now in this message, uh, especially for me, God. Um, you promised that in our weakness, your glory would be made known. And uh, that's what I bring this morning is much weakness. And uh, I ask you, Father, please uh, be faithful to your word as I attempt to try to preach through it in Christ's name. And everyone said. We're in a series of lessons that I'm calling greater than. We've been asking the question. Is God greater than some of life's greatest challenges? Evil, we've talked about bad religion, we've talked about suffering. And last week we looked at something that seeks to sabotage all of our todays. And that's our yesterdays. It's our past. Overcoming some of the wrongs that we've created in others' lives. And some of the wounds that have been created in ours by others. We happened to hear from several people last week in this history of God's interaction with mankind and where he's taken us. And several of them went on record by saying, yes, we believe he is greater than even my past. Well, next week I hope to talk about the future. Man, that can be immobilizing, can't it? Incredibly frightening. We'll talk about that next week, but today I want to talk about the present and some of the challenges we face right now today because some of you need an answer to this question. Is God greater than the present that seems so overwhelming? 
See, friend, it's not if life is going to get painfully difficult, but when. And when it does, we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks, your greater than is going to be revealed. Now, whether it's God or not remains to be seen, but I hope it's Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask, what are you weary of? What are you frustrated with? Where do you want to see progress, but it has been painfully slow? Where are you tempted to just give up? Is it a mate who struggles with depression and you're not sure that you can be the up for their down anymore? You've asked God to bring relief, but none seems to be coming. Maybe your patience is being tested with a teen who for the umpteenth time has brought you to the end of your rope and you're not sure that you have any other knots left. You didn't sign up for this. Your, your house is more like a war zone than a welcome center. You wonder how much more you can take. Maybe you're worn out with your job. Management seems to always find you or catch you doing wrong, but rarely acknowledges so much of the good you know that you're responsible for. You're asking God for patience to stay, and you've asked for a raise, but neither has come. Are you a struggling wife who is tired of feeling alone in her own home and with her own family? You've prayed for your husband to come to faith for over 27 years now, and it doesn't seem like he's an ounce closer than when you first started praying 27 years ago. Hear this from Jesus himself. In this world, you will have many troubles. But I want you to so take heart because I have overcome them. I am greater than any of those circumstances that you're facing with. Sorry, you may want to say. Disappointment and disillusionment in my life, Jimmy, beg to differ. <laughs> and I want you to know that I get it. This has been a challenging time in the sportsman's lives. And, and I've been a little bit down lately myself. There are some things that I have brought to God and asked him to fix and he hasn't fixed them. There are things that have been broken that are in his presence now at the foot of the cross, but they seem more broken now than ever. None of us have actually dumped God None of us have actually walked away, but I can almost guarantee you at least one of you in this room today is convinced it matters little that he's in my life. That's why Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul the apostle, Paul the ragamuffin terrorist. He's going to testify that he's experienced similar moments himself since he became a believer in Christ. Huge moments of discouragement. And yet he is encouraged and he is encouraging a church in a town by the name of Corinth to believe that God is greater than whatever your present circumstances are. Now the book of Corinthians at that time was just a letter. This book does not make the book of Corinthians or the letter of Corinthians valuable and significant whether it was ever placed in a volume like this or not, it's significant because it's true. And because of the inspiration of God that's in just that letter. That's why it's in this Bible, not the other way around. And in this letter, Paul is going to say, 
Trust me, this Christ of ours is greater than any of the struggles that you're dealing with. And they were dealing with some unusual struggles because they don't have a generation of believers in front of them to look at and to measure their life by and their struggles by. This is all brand new. And so when they said, Jesus, we will make you Lord because you've promised that that same spirit that raised you from the dead will come and be a part of us and will help us with the deadness in our life. And he said, yes. And so they said yes. And they thought like many of us, that must mean Whatever struggles are in my path, look out because the bulldozer Jesus, the death defier Jesus, is about to move you out of the way. I mean, if Creator God's my father and the death defier's my brother, then things are going to get easier for me, they thought. And maybe you did too. But Paul's writing this letter in prison, by the way. He's writing this letter saying, no, sometimes they become more difficult. Notice the return address on my letter. Paul says, sorry, not happening. He says that to those in the first century, and he says that to us as well, that life may actually get more difficult when you say yes to Christ. That's why you need to make sure that it's worth it before you do. Paul says that, Jesus says that, that unless you... Realize there's a cross in your future and you're willing to take it up and to die like I am, then you are not ready to be my disciple. So I have to be honest with that too, even though that it's not the most encouraging statement Jesus ever made. It's still the truth. And the church at Corinth was living that out. They were experiencing that. Some of them had, had not just lost their pew at worship, they lost their place in the synagogue. They were kicked out, not allowed to ever come back because of their belief in Christ. Some of their family members were jailed for claiming Jesus as Lord rather than Caesar as Lord. Business contacts lost. Some marriages broken up because one didn't want to be a believer and the other did. And one said, well, if you're going to believe in this crazy resurrected Christ, I'm out of here. Yes, they saw some answers to their prayers. They saw some things that were more beneficial, like that family that they had been introduced to and were now an eternal part of. But they were experiencing some disappointment and they were experiencing the disillusionment on a level that some of them said, I think I'm ready to chuck this thing called the way. And so Paul, in trying to communicate that God is greater than any of their difficult, hard-to-bear circumstances, says, can I talk to you about some, some clay pots, some clay jars? And he does so because pottery was huge in Corinth. Like um, silicone is huge in the Silicon Valley, so was pottery in Corinth. Some of it was basic, simple. Some of it was uh, ornate and beautiful. But the craftsmen there who put them together maybe knew even better than those for whom they gave the jars to that Clay jars are just fragile. Very, very breakable. They not only sold the pottery, they worked with it every single day. And Paul says, I want you to understand this because clay pots get chipped every now and then. Clay pots even break. And they don't tolerate pressure from the outside much. Paul says that we're in a in a hard world and we're a bunch of clay pots who sometimes bump into some of the hardness in our world and to escape unmarked and unbroken is 
fantasy. Wow, Jim, that's encouraging. No, it's not. But it is the truth. It's why I keep in my office, my secretaries and anybody who's been in my office will tell you this is right here at the, uh, the doorway of my office. As I walk back out, you may miss it as you come back in. You may see it when you go back out, but, but this is all here. And it's just a big old basket of broken pottery. Because it helps me remember every single time I walk by it. Well, most of the time when I walk by it, sometimes I just miss seeing it. It's been there so long. That I am stepping out of the sometimes safety and the sanctity of my office into a very, very broken world. And the one who's stepping out into that broken world is a broken man himself who serves a Lord who allowed himself to be broken so that we might experience, listen to me, wholeness. Wholeness. So how do you make it through a world that's so hard that it's inevitable you're going to get chipped and maybe possibly broken? You'd like not to wind up a, a basket of just shards. And God says, no, you don't have to. How do you do that? Well, he takes us to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and that's our text for the day. Go ahead and get there, guys, with the next slide. Paul says, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not ourselves. We're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but we are never abandoned by God. Oh, yes, we will get knocked down, but we will not be knocked out. We will not be destroyed. Though suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be seen in our bodies. Come back to that in a moment. Now, those are the words from a holy terrorist who tried to absolutely stamp out personal handily the, the way, the body of Christ. He hated Christians until Jesus came into his life and turned his world upside down, and then he started training Christians. And he's going to say this. Following Jesus may come with some pressures from every single direction imaginable, but know this, you will not be crushed. That's the first point. Go ahead and move the slide, guys. Pressures cannot crush us. That's as true as the light is on in here right now. It's as true as you sitting in this pew. Paul wants you to understand something. Pressures for those who are in Christ cannot crush you. In Exodus, Moses leads his people out of slavery in Egypt. And about the time that they get up some momentum, Pharaoh wakes up and says, wait a minute. What am I doing letting all the free labor get out? Leave. Are you kidding me? Bring them back and send his army out to go get them. You know the story. The army happens to catch up with them just about the time the Israelites reached the Red Sea. Could the timing be worse? The Red Sea's in front of them. The armies of Pharaoh are behind them. And you almost want to say, come on, God. All at once. I mean, it's one thing to deal with this large body of water. It's another to deal with an army in hot pursuit. That, in a word, is pressure. Pressure. So how did the people respond? Moses decided to write it down. In Exodus 14 and verse 10, he said, As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and they panicked. 
And when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them, they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? Why have you done this to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? He didn't. <laughs> didn't we tell you this would happen while we were in Egypt? No. We said, leave us alone. They didn't say that either. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Isn't it amazing how we can write, rewrite history when we're in a panic? When we can say we said things or that God said things when he didn't or we didn't, it's amazing how we can rewrite history in a panic. But the pressure's on, and what do they do? Well, they panic, and they blame and complain. All three things that we're very, very familiar with, aren't we? Because we're tempted to do the same when the pressure's on. And instead of being still and remembering, hold hold time out, God just led us out of Egypt. We panic, and then we blame and complain just like them. And what I found out is when panic is combined with blaming and complaining, it provides the perfect exit ramp to just give up and turn to a lesser God. I don't know, whatever that is. Sex, alcohol, drugs, sports. If you blame enough, then you become a victim. Ah, now that's handy. And when you're a victim long enough, you can quit without feeling like a quitter. It lets you off the hook. You can give up without feeling like you're quitting anything. Now, we never say, I give up. We never say that. What we say are things like, I wasn't left with any other choice. If the home that I grew up in would have been different. If my spouse would have been more attentive, if my parents had been more affectionate and understanding, if my boss wasn't so demanding, if God would have opened them this door. But it left me with no choice. It's not that I'm giving up. I'm not a quitter. I just had no choice. Moses suggests one. Do not be afraid, he says to the people. Stay put. Stand where you are. And watch the Lord rescue you today. He goes on to say, the Egyptians who pursue you today will never be seen again because the Lord himself will fight for you. Well, here's the challenge to that reality. If I'm putting this story together in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, Lord, if you're fighting for your people like you say you are, how about this? How about you don't let the army leave Egypt? Or how about changing the timing up maybe just a little bit so that it's not all at once, Red Sea in front and the army behind? Why does it have to be both? How about one at a time? And God has his answer in verse 18. Next slide, guys. I'll use Pharaoh and his entire army and his chariots and his horsemen to put my glory on display so that the Egyptians will realize I, God. Sister, please hear that. Because there is something about pressure that allows God to put his glory on display that can't be seen any other way. I didn't know that was going to rhyme, but that's good. 
There's something about having no one and nowhere to turn that gives God opportunity to demonstrate His power, His strength, and you being good with that. Maybe not good at it, but good with it is what it means to be a God-honoring Jesus jar. And a jar of clay that's going to be blessed with life to the full. His presence within in my brokenness some way, somehow allows his glory to be seen in me. And I have seen this lived out time and time again in your lives, and I've seen it in my own. I may have told you this story or not. If I have, please forgive me, but I don't think I have. When Gil and I weren't doing well, I opened up a taxidermy business. And one day while I was attempting to do something that I had never done before, I was um, attempting to mount a bull elk on a pedestal mount. It was a huge project, huge. And again, I've never attempted it before, and so I prayed, God, give me wisdom and guidance and strength. I watched videos. I had a, another taxidermist on the line. The, the hard part was, was how you connect this huge bull elk from the shoulders up and the antlers. And, go ahead and put the side up on the screen, guys. How you connect that huge bull to that piece of cedar. That's 40 pounds of animal on top of that, and to try to pull that off, I'd never done that before. So I got a lot of coaching, saw as many videos as I can. I'd never seen someone actually do it. And the day that I'm doing it, it is going awesome. I put this great pedestal holder in the, in the cedar, and I pull it up through the animal there. And I, I've got the, uh, the antlers on, and I've got the hide paste slathered all over this thing. And I'm, I'm pulling this, this animal on, the hide on, when all of a sudden we're talking leaning tower of pizza. Forty pounds of elk starts just falling forward all the way to the ground. And my encouraging sidekick employee simply said, Bummer, dude. What are you going to do now? I don't know. After trying to wrestle it and figure out what I was going to do, I just said, I just need a break. And so I went back to my office. He went on to processing some meat. And uh, I just said, God, I don't, I, I, I ask you not to do this, <laughs> not to let this happen. But you did, and I need some help. I started to make some phone calls, and before I could get the phone, first phone call made, a pickup drove up into my driveway. It was Tilvin Hoffpower. He's not a taxidermist. Um, he's, he's a big old guy, though. I mean, he could rip me in two like a wet paper, just 6'4", ripped, worked out all the time. Owned an alligator farm in Beaumont, Texas. He had stopped by my shop because he just got some alligator hides tanned and wanted me to see them. He came in and says, what's up? <laughs> said, come here, let me show you what's down. And we walked back to my shop. And the reason why I took him back there, because even though he's not a taxidermist, this man can fix anything. I'm telling you anything. And I said, I don't know what to do with this. And he said, give me 20 minutes. Got back in his truck, went to his house. Actually, it took him 30. And he came back with this souped up mounting bracket he had made at home with this welding machine. And in an hour, we had pulled out the old bracket, put the new one in, and I had that elk mounted in three more hours. Done. Now, God could have had him show up when I was putting that mounting bracket in in the first place because he would have looked at it and said, that ain't going to work. 40 pounds of animal, you're going to have leaning tower of elk. Not going to happen. 
He didn't let him show up then. No, he let me go through that with Mr. Encouragement next to me and watch it all just go face forward on the ground. Then he sends Tillman in and helps me put it back together again. And I did. And a month later, the customer came to pick it up and <laughs> he looked it all over and he said, Jimmy, this is flawless. I said, yes, it is. <laughs> now. And I told him the story about how a brother in Christ of mine came and rescued me when it didn't look so good. Yeah, he could have sent Tillman in earlier, but he didn't because he wanted to see his glory on display in my weakness. And he wanted Mr. Encouragement, my employee, to see what a brother in Christ would do for you without any pay interest at all. And he wanted to hear three or four hundred people. He wanted three or four hundred people to hear something that he's done in your life like he's done in mine. Or that he wants to do in your life if you'll just stay put and trust him. Not easy to do. Not easy to do at all. A man loses his job and one of his life groups gets together or his life group gets together and they pitch in to give him enough money to make ends meet so that God can be glorified. A friend of mine's wife was falsely accused of mishandling a situation at school and the administrator let her go. But a community close by saw through the politics of what was going on and they hired her and her best teaching years have taken place at her new school. And God's glory was put on display. When the Red Sea's in front of you and the army's behind you, how in the world do you handle that? Here's what you do. You be still and know that God's at work. How do you know when you're at that point? <laughs> Easy, when you can't do anything else. When you've tried to control the situation and you can't. As much as you want the decision for your son, he's got to make the decision himself. As much as you want to change the diagnosis, you have no power over that. There's nothing you can do. And when that happens, you claim this truth. And my advice is claim it out loud. Satan, I am pressed, but I am not crushed. Satan, I am pressed, but I am not crushed. Would you say that with me? Satan, I am pressed, but I am not crushed. If God is for me, who could be against me? Some of you may have some answers to that rhetorical question. Paul's going to go on to say in verse 8, we're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. Because uncertainty can't discourage us. Pressures can't crush us. But even uncertainty can't discourage us. Do we have questions? You bet we do. There are some things that are very confusing about how God's working in our lives. There are some things from our perspective that we would absolutely do different if we were in charge. And so, yes, we're perplexed, but we are not in despair. We will not be driven to despair. And why not? Because God knows what we don't, and he sees what we see. We don't see. That's why. Tony Evans says this, even when things seem to be going wrong, they just could be going right. Because when you're in God's will, I love this, the negatives are part of his positive program. The Hebrew writer says it this way. Faith is the assurance of things that we can't see. Conviction of things that we hope in. 
To have faith is believing there's a story being written that's not quite written yet. And man, did that come home to me when Gail's mom was with us. She loved puzzles. For Christmas, I think the church members here gave her three of them, and they were all about cats. She had them all out one day, looking at their bags, looking at the puzzle pieces. She kept them all in the bag, but she was just examining the boxes and the pieces. Well, she put them back in different boxes. For a week, she tried to put one of them together, and she got nowhere. When we finally figured out what was going on, we realized she had the wrong box top. Didn't say anything to her. We just went and switched out the box tops. And amazingly, things went smoother from there. Getting the wrong box top will make life difficult. It was painful for some of you. You weren't even there. and you. The problem with some of us sitting here today is we're trying to put together the puzzle pieces of our lives and to make sense out of where they go. And you've got the wrong box top because it's your box top. You want life on your terms, and you want it your way. And rather than saying, God, I, <laughs> I have no box top. I'm the puzzle piece. You're the puzzler. Put me together any way you want. You are still, at your age, trying to piece together this puzzle your way. That was Abraham. <laughs> God comes to him and says, I want you to do something life-changing. That is eventually going to bless the nations of the world, as John said. He says, all right, what, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to just go. Well, go where? Three pastors over, three, three counties over, three nations over. He says, well, you just get started, and I'll tell you when, when you've arrived. It's Joseph being told through a dream that he will be a great leader, and he's sold into slavery. That's not on the box tops of either one of those guys. Isaac, when he finally does have a child, and 99 years old, his wife's 100, it's nuts how old they are. When they finally do have a boy and he's growing up, you want me to do what? Take him up to Mount Moriah and what? That's not on the box top. It's David being told that you are, a, you are the next king of Israel by the prophet of Israel, Samuel. And he's so pumped and excited, I get to leave shepherding and I get to go be a king. Awesome. No, not for 10 years, buddy, because you're going to be running from the present king and hiding in caves. That was not on the box top. Mary being told that she's going to conceive a child and give birth to the Son of God, not on the box top. She's never been with a man, never slept with anybody. How is this going to work when her fiancé hears, I'm pregnant with... God's child. That's not on his box top, I can guarantee you. Peter leaves his nets to become a fisherman of men. What in the world is that? But he does, even though that's not on his box top. All of these people that I've mentioned this morning, and there could be so many more, have puzzle pieces. They have their lives in their hands. They can do with them what they want because they can choose God as their greater than or they can be the greater. They get to choose and they choose God. And God, listen to me, changes the world through each of them. This book is an absolute history of God's interaction with his greatest creation 
And it is stunning what goes on in it because God gets together these, these pieces and he puts them together in a way none of us would have written a story. None of us would have designed that box to look like that. And amazingly, all throughout it, you get some people who think they know what's going on. And so they start to kind of put together their own picture like Abraham and Hagar. Remember that one? I think I know how this needs to go, God. Let me help you out a little bit. And so he starts to put together the puzzle. Big mistake. Creates a nation that's going to be at war with Israel forever. Like forever, okay? We don't know how to put this puzzle together. And so that's one of the things Jesus said. Let's start here in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who realize we don't know what we're doing. For they shall see God. So I'm going to ask you this. Have you given up on your picture yet? Even at your age, some of you. Have you said to God, this puzzle piece, boom, is yours. Anyway, anywhere you want to place it in your picture, fine. Because God assures us he is putting the piece together. And he's putting this puzzle together that seems large and crazy at times. But Romans 8 and 28 says this. In all things we know that God is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's how we keep our sanity. That's how we stand when we're in between the Red Sea and, and the army coming. When, we, when we've been asked to do what, Lord? Sacrifice what? Yes, give it to me. But, but, but that's not what my... It's my box, remember. Yes, Lord, I know. Give it to me. That's hard. Can we just say it? It's hard. Because we keep wanting to determine where our puzzle piece is going to go and where we're going to place it and what benefit it's going to be to us. Paul says, you've got to give that up. And if you will, we will be pressured, but we will not be crushed. We will be perplexed, but we will not be in despair. And he says, we will be hunted down, but we will never, repeat, never be abandoned by God. Never. Last slide. Next slide. Opposition can't defeat us. Pressure can't crush us. Uncertainty is not going to cause us despair. And opposition cannot defeat us. We may be knocked down, but we will never, ever be knocked down. Let me ask it this way. Whatever circumstance you happen to be at at the moment, I know you're tempted to not do some things his way. So let me just ask you this. If you could just know, I mean, I mean really know, if God could give you a sign, listen, I am for you. Just as Christopher read a few moments ago, if I'm for you, why would you worry about anything? If he could give you a sign that he was for you, would you give up? That's why Paul says what he says in Romans 8.32. Well, if he didn't spare his own son, go ahead and next scripture, guys. But he gave him up for us all. Will he not also graciously take care of everything else in your life? Now, he's using the old Hebrew uh, way of communicating. If the greater is true, then the lesser has got to be true. 
So if he's not going to keep back his most beloved treasure, his son, and allows him to go to a cross to die for you ragamuffin, ungrateful, selfish, prideful people, if he would would do that for the thing he loved most in the world, will he not also take care of everything else that you're dealing with in this life? There's your sign. There's your sign. Have you noticed how many crosses there are just everywhere? On necks, on buildings, on churches, in some of the most crazy crosses everywhere. Because God doesn't want you to miss the sign. <laughs> and go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's not going to be on one of the slides. Okay, we're going to be, um, let's see, pressured but not crushed. We're going to be perplexed but not in despair. We're going to be knocked down, but we're not going to be knocked out. Yes. How? How? Give me something to do. Okay, he says, very next verse, then I want you to carry with you everywhere the death of Christ so that the life of Christ will be birthed in you. I didn't get that for the longest time. You carried this cross, not necessarily on your neck, in your heart. You loved me this much? Yes. Yes. And if I loved you this much, we can handle this. We can handle this. Now, John did a great thing this morning in taking us back to an Old Testament picture to say, you know, this story of God's grace and mercy being poured out on us started a long time ago. Talked about early in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then then this picture of it is given us with Abraham and Isaac, but really was pointing to this incredible sign we're going to be given about how much God loves us in Jesus Christ. Well, there was another big one, and it was... (laughs) The craziest, most incredible slime that God, I think, has anywhere in the Bible. Hosea and Gomer. Man, what a crazy sign. He comes to his prophet one day and says, Oh, I want you to do me a favor to, to prove to Israel how much I think of them. Great, Lord, I'm your man. Let's go get them. All right, I want you to go to the red light district, and I want you to find a prostitute by the name of Gomer, and I want you to marry her. Wow, what an assignment for a kid fresh out of preaching school. Really? Yes, and he does. And if you read the story, it seems that things are going pretty well with that little project. He loves, he loves Gomer. She loves him. And then he comes home one day and the house is empty. And he looks for her and she can't find her and he says, oh no. And he goes where he thinks she might be, but hopes she's not. And sure enough, she goes down there and watches her walk into a sleazy hotel with another man. We're done, right, God? No. I want you to go get her. Buy her back from the pimp. Take her home. And remember, she's your bride. She's your bride. God, that's just nuts. Nobody loves anybody like that. Oh, yes. Yes, they do. Because this is just a visual of how I love Israel. How he loves you. So if your circumstances have led you to a place where you believe, okay, maybe through Abraham, maybe through Joseph, maybe through Peter, but there's no way, not with this pot. I mean, look at it. And you know, Jimmy, I'm not even that, I'm not even that healthy. Not with this pot. 
Yeah, even with that one. Blown all apart. Not really looking much of anything. That's the power of the resurrection. And that's what he wants to do in you. But it requires you, your faith, your belief. And we're inviting you to act on that belief if you've never done that before and said, I want in on that. Find me down here today and we'll baptize you in the Christ right here. And you can leave here a brand new creation and begin to experience resurrection power starting today. Now, how that's going to look and how it's going to turn out, I don't know. I'm not going to make you any false promises. But you know what the puzzle maker says this? If I loved you this much, I can handle whatever you're bringing me. Watch me. We hope you will. If there's anybody we can wrap our arms around today who, who right now, you just simply have some circumstances. I, I want to believe, but will you help my unbelief? Yes. Because we'll wrap our arms around you and we will love you through this and we'll believe right along with you that God's going to work whatever circumstances are present for good because he is greater than our present. Amen. Let's stay in the same church.